uninvited guests, and uncomfortable truths. This is Chapter 215 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa Cherenkovich, and coming up, we chat with Sri Lankan-based author Amanda Jayathissa about the unexpected emotions her new thriller stirred up in readers. Then we dive into the world of psychics and skeptics, origin stories, and imposter syndrome with author Nan Fisher. A lavish Sri Lankan wedding serves as the setting for You're Invited, the newest novel from author Amanda Jayathissa. But don't count on that happily ever after. This is a thriller, which means a few dead bodies and a whole lot of plot twists and turns are in store for readers. Amaya is probably one of the most unreliable narrators I've had ever had the pleasure to meet slash read. And <laughs> did your story, which is set at a lavish uh, Sri Lankan wedding where not everyone survives, start with mm-hmm. her or did one of your other characters serve as the jumping off point for the story? Oh, no, it was definitely her. When I'm drafting and when I'm plotting, the first thing I do is I think of the big plot twist. That's usually step one for me. And after I have a loose outline of where I want the story to go, and this is when I say loose, I mean, maybe four or five sentences scribbled down oftentimes on a napkin or something really random like that. Um, After that's done, I usually take as much time as I can to really come up with the main character's voice and um, the main character's sort of emotions and kind of trying to get to know them a little bit. I know that sounds like a very strange thing to say because these people live in my head. Um, But uh, I usually like to do this exercise where I pull out um, a blank notebook or something and I just start journaling in the voice of this particular character. And Amaya, you know, I mean, she's a lot. She's going through a lot of things. That had to be Um, quite a journal you kept in her voice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, it was really interesting because um, she's quite an anxious character. And I wrote You're Invited sort of the second year into lockdown, um, when, you know, you're past that um, sense of, I guess, like that helplessness and confusion and a little bit of anger that you felt in the beginning. Um, And I remember I settled into this sort of anxious headspace. And a lot of that really did end up sneaking its way into Amaya's character at the end of it. Um, She just took on this certain mannerism and the certain I guess uh, she has a lot of obsessive compulsive tendencies um you know uh there's definitely a lot going on there so yeah she was she was the first character um at the end of it I knew exactly what I wanted to do with her and what her sort of motivations were and how she would um kind of proceed uh through the story so yeah she was character one Now, you really do keep readers on their toes until the very last page. And even when I thought I was so smart and had things all figured out, you went and you dropped another bomb. So I know this might be a little (laughs) bit difficult, but without giving too much away, what can Mm -hmm. readers expect when they pick up You're Invited? Well, they can certainly expect a big over-the-top extravagant Sri Lankan wedding, and they can expect to learn a little bit about Sri Lankan culture and wedding traditions, and also a little bit about how the 1% in Colombo operate. Um, Because 
this book, um, the the society that you see when you read your invited, it's not um, a very good indicator of how most of the country operates. Um, that they are very much <laughs> a niche, <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, uh, so so there's a lot of um, gossip and talk of the town and, you know, things like that, that happen in these little bubble-like societies uh, that you see all over the world, actually, and I think is quite relatable in that sense. Um, and, of course, there's some murder because we are, what would a story be if there were no dead bodies sprinkled through it? Um, yeah, and, and, of course, um, for me, as a reader what I really love and enjoy in a story is to be caught off guard. So as a writer, that's what I try to deliver as much as I can. You know, when, when somebody comes and tells me, Hey, you know what? I never saw that coming for me. That's sort of one of the biggest compliments um, I could get. Cause I was like, great. Like that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted um, kind of to surprise you a little bit, um, but leave you feeling a little unsteady because I like to be, I like to be left feeling that way when I read something. So, yeah. So how much of the detail of this this 1% of Sri Lankan society is exaggerated and how much of it is like this is actually how people in, in that part of the country live? Oh, I think the book's tame compared to some of the real <laughs> really? things that go on wow. here, to be fair. Um <laughs> You know, it's it's really funny. I had so much, so much fun writing the bits and pieces of gossip that made their way into the story because most of that gossip, I can say with confidence that probably 99, I could say 100% of that gossip in some form is something that I have heard. Now, I don't know if those things are true or not, um, like the people who are conveying the gossip in the story, like no one really knows what happened. It's probably a nugget of truth or two in there but those things are definitely things that I have heard you know whispered from person to person usually at these social gatherings and things like that you know the the older ladies are like oh you know what I I don't mean to gossip but did you know that you know so and so did such and such and um yeah so I had such a blast um like you know pulling all of those things in together and I remember there was this one afternoon where I called um you know, a few friends of mine. And I was like, you know what, can you just tell me the juiciest bit of gossip that you heard in the last like year or so? And goodness, they delivered. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I guess when you have so much money, your currency in that kind of world really becomes the information, you know. Yeah, true. And I don't think that's, um, you know, exclusive to just Sri Lankan high society. I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, seen in sort of these little bubbles of, you know, upper class society all around the world. Um, it's just sometimes you feel that distinction in a very stark way in Colombo, because I mean, I mentioned it in the book, and it's something that I am incredibly mindful of it was, you know, you could be walking down a street, and there would be these huge houses and just Sometimes just on the other side of the road, there would be, you know, people living in a completely different way of life, you know. So um, it's very, very stark in play, in, in Colombo sometimes. And um, Amaya recognizes that she grew up in this position of privilege. And it's only almost when she leaves Sri Lanka and comes back does she realize 
you know, this distinction so clearly. And I think the world a little got a, a, a little look into that world with everything that's the headlines that have come out in the last few weeks from Sri Lanka mm-hmm. with, you know, between the haves oh, yeah. and the haves nots and the protests. And, and you live there now, right? You're you're. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm okay. The country is decidedly not okay. This is a very, very difficult time. Um, I'm very privileged that, you know, my husband and I are in a position that we have access to certain things like absolute basics, like food security and things like that. Um, There are a lot of people who don't have that right now. Um, The thing about Sri Lanka is it's very interesting. We're often voted very high, like usually top five in sort of the charity index, like we're very charitable um, as a country and it's part of the culture. So you see a lot of effort by um, just your average Sri Lankans trying to help and kind of trying to rally together and see how we can help things out. But there's a lot of, I mean, we are very much in the middle of an economic and political crisis at the moment. I want to get back to your story. The book. Yes. <laughs> Sorry for all the heavy stuff. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I thought that it would be remiss if we if we didn't touch on that just because of of, yeah. of the society of the group that your your book focuses on, and mm-hmm. and to me it seems like this is like really ripe for for a film or a TV adaptation. And I have to ask, has there been any interest on that on that front? <laughs> um, I really can't say at the moment. I'm afraid. <laughs> Well, that's not a no, so that's okay. <laughs> what are you working on next? I am working on another book. I unfortunately can't speak much of that <laughs> either right now. I am so sorry to do this. Um, and it's not for lack of excitement. I'm so excited um, about it, but it hasn't been announced yet. So I'm afraid I can't say much more because I have this problem where I tend to stick my foot in my mouth um, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so I find my like if I try to even give someone like a little sneak, like, like just like a few crumbs of something, I end up just overdoing it and then you know that's going to make a few people unhappy and I'm not I don't want to go there (laughs) no and I don't I don't want to be responsible for you making people unhappy I guess (laughs) I I, there was a point in the book that I I'm being careful about saying it because I don't want to give it anything away but I I like Mm -hmm. dog-eared the page because uh there's a point about halfway through or three quarters through where we we learn about what's really going on with Amaya and she kind of does this little nodding wink to the audience to be like, see, I was telling you all along, like you thought I was this person, but that turns out not to be the case. And I thought that was really a fun move on your part because you managed to string us along for so long. And then, like I say, you dropped a bomb. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Thanks. Um, I have so much to say about that, but I can't really without spoiling the book, which I feel like I'm being very secretive in this conversation. And <laughs> well, I don't want a, to This be. is a really hard book to talk about because you don't want to give anything away. And you really do want the readers to enjoy all the little reveals that you have in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, with Amaya, it was fun to be able to do that a little bit. I, I knew sort of with her relationships with the different characters, I, I sort of knew going in how I wanted to frame it. And actually one of the relationships that I had a lot of fun writing about, um, again, was her relationship with Kavi, her ex, now ex-best friend, whom she hasn't spoken to in five years. And of course, a large part of the mystery is what happened five years ago 
you know, that, that they stopped suddenly speaking to each other because they grew up together and they're incredibly close and they went to college together and, and all of that. Um, and uh, the reason that I sort of was very interested in writing about this angle is that I feel that friendship breakups is something that we don't speak about enough um, in just society nowadays. You know, it's completely acceptable to be heartbroken over a romantic breakup, right? Um, it's almost expected that you, you know, sit in front of the couch with a pint of ice cream and like all your girlfriends rally around you and you listen to like Celine Dion songs and, you know, watch trashy TV and everyone, you know, gets together and helps you out. And it, it's so acceptable um, to do that. But oftentimes, and, and I find myself reflecting on some of my friendships that have ended and how heartbreaking and how difficult it was to navigate, um, especially when you're younger, like especially when you're in your 20s, it's such a difficult thing because those friendships can be so meaningful. Um, and oftentimes you find that you know friendship breakups might hurt even more than romantic breakups. I know in that was very true for me in a lot of instances. Um, so I really wanted to take a little time to discuss like sort of this, this friendship and how it had failed both women at the end of the day and how um, they changed after it and how they find themselves, you know, dealing with the aftermath of everything that happened. So that was a very interesting thing for me um, to talk about. And of course, it's it's not a, a a normal reason to have drifted apart. But again, we can't <laughs> talk about that. Oh no! But so we have, we've got murder, we've got some light stalking, uh, we've got greed. But I think mm -hmm. scariest of all, there's the fear of becoming one's mother. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's really interesting. I was I was chatting with some other writers about this recently about how parents in thrillers they're always like. A piece of work like you, you know like the parents are always so terrible it's like no wonder your children are so um messed up in that sense but it it kind of has to be that way because i feel like if you come from a super healthy family and you know you you grew up as like a fully functioning well-to-do adult you're not probably going to make the choices that lead to like a dead body you, you know so um it's it's very interesting but i um again i found it I, I did really take a lot of time to outline the relationships that both women had with their mothers because they're very, very different relationships. You know, one of them, um, Amaya is, I can will say this, it's not a spoiler or anything, is that like she's really missing her mother. And um, with Kavi, Kavi has this really interesting sort of push and pull relationship with her mother um who's this very formidable figure. And it, it's very much a love-hate but can't, can't do with can't do without sort of relationship um and uh I have to say I think Kavi's mother Mrs. Fonseca was one of my favorite characters that I think I've ever written um I, I uh I really liked drawing on a lot of the matriarchs that I have seen um you know just even in my own life um and you know that I've that I've witnessed um, and kind of taking little bits and pieces of these very strong, very powerful women who can be manipulative, but also have, you know, best, their, their children's and their family's best interests at heart. And I thought that was interesting. I mean, she's a side character, of course, but that was a very interesting character for me to work on. And I can imagine that uh, when that project that you can't talk about 
uh, <laughs> comes out that that character is going to be an amazing character to play as well, just because she's so she's just so out there. And yeah. I think every every family has a, a a mom or an aunt or or someone who who fills that role. Yeah, yeah, of course. And it's it's um it's been actually I think the relationship with mothers has been such a unexpected sort of thing that has come out of this book because um, I don't know if you noticed. So I actually dedicated this book to my own mother um, who passed away 12 years ago now. And she was very much sort of one of these very strong women, like very strong, very independent. I mean, I certainly come from um, a family of feminists, even like well, well ahead of their time, um, even before they probably knew these concepts like feminism existed. Uh, my mother, her mother, uh, were very, very strong women. Um, and of course, uh, the, I mean, the big difference is that my mother never really actively encouraged me to get married. Um, you know, there, there was none of that. There, there was like, go out and chase your dreams. There was never of this um, traditional sort of... Um, obligations attached to me, which I'm very, very thankful of. Um, but I've had so many readers who read the book um, reach out to me, uh, just like to talk about relationships with their own mothers. Or, or I've had readers reach out to me who lost their mothers and, and said, you know, they read the dedication. This was so interesting to them. Um, and I've had readers from South Asia talk to me about sort of the pressures of marriage um, that they receive from their own mothers. And it's just been such a really interesting um, conversation that I've been having and it's, it's ongoing. And so it's such an unexpected thing to come out of the story that I didn't expect and I'm so grateful for. Yeah, that's usually not a feeling you get from a thriller book, like maybe some other no. sort of women's <laughs> fiction, you know, you might expect it that would stir up those kinds of emotions. But when you read a thriller, you're not expecting to be confronted with that. But yes, that that's what happens when you read this book. <laughs> We've been talking yeah. with Amanda Jayathissa. The new book is You're Invited. Thank you so much for joining us today and tell, talking to us about all the things you could talk about and even all the things you couldn't talk about. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much, Lisa. It was so much fun. Um, thank you for having me. Believe it or not, the psychic service industry, which covers palm reading, astrology, and mediums, brings in over $2 billion, with a B, dollars a year in the U.S. With that kind of money, it's no wonder that some less-than-scrupulous people claim to have gifts. But does that mean everyone is a fake? No, if you ask the believers. Yes, if you ask the skeptics. And her adult debut novel, Some of It Was Real, author Nan Fisher tackles both sides of the debate. You write in your author acknowledgments that every book starts with a question. And my first question to you is, what question prompted this story about a celebrity clairvoyant and the journalist who's on a mission to end her career? What started the whole thing was, what do I think about psychics? Do I believe in psychics? Do I not believe in psychics? And then I kind of go down a road. Well, if I do believe in psychics, what kind of gifts would they have? If I don't believe in psychics, how would I prove that they're a fraud? And then I kind of jump around and, and try and figure out what would make that psychic interesting to people. And to me, a psychic with an imposter syndrome would be super interesting because psychics are supposed to be so certain of what they do. 
So having a psychic with an imposter syndrome makes me ask, why does she have an imposter syndrome? What is it about her life or her gift that, that leads her to doubt her abilities? And that led me into not only imposter syndrome, but origin stories, which is something I'm fascinated with, which are the stories that we use to define who we are. And they usually come from our childhood and from stories we're told and from hazy memories. And they're usually not true. So to create, first of all, a psychic, which then just me, then who has imposter syndrome, and then who has a faulty origin story and can't live an authentic life because she doesn't know really who she is or where she came from, um, just led me down the road to create the entire novel. So I think that's a, a great pitch and a really convincing way to get readers to pick up this book. But if there's somebody who's listening who is still not convinced that they want to read this, why don't you tell us a little bit more? Well, I think for people who don't believe in psychics, and I don't really say one way or another in this novel whether psychics are real or not, that's where the character of Thomas comes in. So the premise of the story is a psychic who isn't quite sure she believes in her gift, but she's on the verge of stardom. And then a cynical journalist, Thomas, who is trying to redeem his career by proving that Sylvia is a fraud. So both, both, uh, both sides are represented, basically, because uh, a game of cat and mouse ensues where Thomas tries to trap Sylvia in a lie. And then she has to prove to him in order to save her career that she is not a fraud and that she's not a grief vampire. So if you want to read a story about a psychic and you believe in psychics, there's that. But if you want to read a story about a cynical journalist and how his views change, not necessarily to believe in psychics, but to understand that there's a gift involved sometimes with people who visit psychics who are looking to end their grief and suffering, there's that for a reader as well. Where do you land on that question now that you've written the book? Are you a believer or are you a doubting Thomas? Well, can I ask you, do you believe in psychics? I think that there are things that we can't explain and there might be some people in this world who are able to channel it. But I've been, I work in news and there have been enough stories of people who are frauds that I think if you are going to believe it, you still have to maintain some skepticism. So I think that's where I land on that debate. Well, I think I land similarly. You know, when I started this novel and I did a lot of research, I thought I was going to come to a definitive answer. And what I realized, you know, I, I read a lot of articles about people who try to debunk psychics. And one of those articles, and I can't remember the journalist's name off the top of my head, was about a man who basically laid a trap for a psychic, went into a very crowded theater with thousands of people and sat there waiting, you know, for, you know, the guy to prove that he was a fraud, basically. And what the conclusion he came to at the end of two hours of watching people being read, he said that there was this collective change in the atmosphere of the auditorium, that there was so much angst and sadness and grief, and that it felt like the air pressure had changed and people, people left with something. They left with, with a road to move on or a feeling of peace. And so I think where I come, the conclusion I come to is that to me, 
it doesn't really matter. As long as someone's not a grief vampire, meaning they're not basically just trying to build people out of their life savings. If someone pays to go see a psychic and leaves feeling that their loved one, their pet, their sister, their brother is at peace and they can move on, I'm okay with it. And that's kind of the conclusion I drew at the end of the story. Now, in your story, we have Sylvie, who's a psychic. She's searching for her past, which she can't remember, even though she has an didactic memory. And that lends to the mystery. And Thomas is trying to expose her. And, you know, we always hear about this cliche that when you know the truth, it will set you free. But you really focus on how the truth sometimes has to hurt or will hurt before you're able to be set free. Definitely. I think it takes a lot of courage. You know, part of of having an origin story is it makes us feel safe and comfortable. We know who we are. We know where we came from. If you have the courage, if you know you're not living authentically, if you know something's wrong in your life and you have the courage to look back at your origin story and question it, that's a really uncomfortable thing. And for Sylvie, it's a really painful thing, as well as for Thomas. They're they're two people who seem so dissimilar, yet they both suffer from imposter syndrome and faulty origin stories. One, because Sylvie's story is a, is a lie. And two, because Thomas's origin story is seen through the lens of a trauma that happened in his childhood. And so it has to hurt to face those paths in order to propel you to move forward in a very authentic way. You know, I skipped around in my questions a little bit. The natural follow-up, what I should have asked you before that question I just asked you, is that the book's been out for a few weeks, and I'm just curious if you've heard from readers about the subject matter and what they think and, you know, whether they've been telling you, yes, you're right, or they're really, you got it all wrong. It's interesting. There's been a mix of people who say, I don't believe in psychics at all, yet this story had something for me, yet I still love this story. And there have been other people who have shared their psychic stories with me, which has been really fun as well. And and the most interesting thing, especially in interviews, when someone shares their psychic story, is for me to say, how did you feel after that? And 100% of the people say better, that I got something out of it. So, So I'm hearing from both, but luckily, a balance between Sylvie and Thomas, between a believer and a cynic. Um, seems to kind of hit the sweet spot of keeping everyone relatively happy. (laughs) I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think, you know, hope is, is, is such a strong feeling and such, and can be a balm for, for anything. And, you know, what really is the biggest mystery in life is, is there anything after you die and where do people go and do consciousness still exist? And to be able to, even if you don't get that proof yourself in a reading, but you see someone else get that. It, it, it does make you feel better that, okay, I think, you know, I think I can move on or I think I can deal with this. Although you do have and you have a character in your book who gets a little obsessed. And there are people who, even if they get an answer, they can't move away from it. They, they become stuck. Right. There are people who become stuck. And I think that's where the whole grief vampire term kind of comes to play because they, they are very easy, um, easy marks for people when you're stuck in your grief, um, for people to take advantage of, which is a a really sad thing. And obviously I don't condone, but, um, but I do think for most people, when they're told definitively by a psychic, they believe in that, um, 
I'm talking to your loved one or your loved one wants you to move on, they tend to move on, which is a pretty amazing thing. And I, I just, I just think that that's a gift no matter what, to be able to give that to someone. When you first started to write this story, did you ever think that you would get this kind of reaction that would spur so much conversation amongst readers and then people like letting you know, and even in interviews, people sharing stories with you? I'm just so happy that it has because every story that I write, you know, you're always trying to figure out a little bit about yourself and whatever story you write. And I always have had imposter syndrome. I've always felt like I didn't fit into my own skin or I didn't deserve, you know, where I was or what was happening. I'm talking to you and I feel my imposter syndrome. <laughs> so, so I think, um, I think you put those things that are important to you into what you write and you hope that readers are going to take beyond, you know, I want to write a page turner. I want to write a book that you finish and you say, wow, that was just a really great yarn well told which is a phrase my dad used to use. And it's something I, I, I always aspire to. But I also hope that people take more from my stories if it, if, if it talks to them in that way and that we all feel like imposters at some point in our life and you just have to keep on keeping on. And we all have faulty origin stories and you don't have to, um, you don't have to let that be the, the narrative for your life. You actually can question and even if it's not a faulty origin story, you get to choose who you want to be when you, you know, are grown up. And so um, I'm really pleased that people are talking about the story and that they're coming in on both sides of do I believe, don't I believe, but also that people are taking it that step farther and asking questions about their own lives and also understanding that none of us necessarily feel like we fit in our skin 100% of the time. I was going to say, I think imposter syndrome is something almost everybody suffers from. Some people longer than others, but it's funny because you say you sitting there talking to me, you feel it. I feel it sitting here talking to you. So funny. It really <laughs> is. It's just, but you just, I think the message there is that we still do what we do. Like some people allow imposter syndrome to really derail them. I had a therapist once who told me that we all have core beliefs and they're formed when we're really, really young. Um, my core belief maybe is that I'm an imposter, but it's what we do after that matters. And you can have those beliefs, you can feel that way, but then you still need to pursue the things that you have a passion for and hope at some point that it feels like you're fitting into your skin. I know writing fiction for me changed really everything. You know, I, I, I've written a lot of different kinds of things. I've written Star Wars books and sport autobiographies where I co-wrote with athletes. And I wrote two young adult novels that that was the first time for me where I really felt like I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. And then this leap to writing my first adult novel is, is, is even more in that realm of, of feeling like I'm where I'm supposed to be. So you just keep trying until you find your space. I was going to ask, you know, this being your first adult novel, if there was any imposter syndrome feelings, but also why did you choose this story as the story you wanted to tell? And was it the writing process any different for you? Well, I think I choose every story because it's something that interests me. I, I, and I don't necessarily know how the pieces are going to fit together. Like, oh, I'm interested in psychics, but I'm also interested in imposter syndrome and origin stories. And then I try and figure out 
how do I weave the things that fascinate me? Because if I'm not interested, I don't think that my readers will be interested because I won't have a passion for it. The way it changed for me in terms of writing, um, sex scenes, I don't have to fade out. Uh, that was kind of fun. Um, <laughs> I could swear. Um, and also, I think that there's a latitude for adult um, in adult novels where characters can really be flawed in a way that's not necessarily right now in YA, things have to be a little more careful and a little more politically correct. Um, and in adult novels, it's not that you should strive to not be politically correct, but adult readers allow, um, allow characters to grow in a very organic way. Um, and that means that they can start off unlikable, like Thomas is. You know, Tom, I don't think Thomas in Some of It Was Real comes off as super likable at the beginning. Um, Sylvie's also a psychic who sometimes researches her audiences. So that's not necessarily acceptable either. But in adult novels, your readership allows you the space and time to let your characters truly grow organically. I have to say, as, as much as I liked Sylvie and Thomas's story, the supporting characters of Moose and, and the cat's name is escaping me now. Christopher Robin. Christopher Robin. That's how could I forget a name like that? They're just the 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 parts that they played in the story and in drawing the two of them together and, and forming that bond. It was just so sweet, but also just such a testament to I'm gonna guess you're a pet lover or an yes. animal lover because you just know that like the love that's there. If people are capable for love for animals like that, they should be capable for love of humans in the same way. That's exactly it. I'm a huge animal lover. I have a, a dog, a Vishla named Boone, who shows up in everything I write. There's always a Boone. Um, he's almost 14. Um, so that's terrifying for me because he's, he's quite, you know, up there in age. But I think you can tell the most about people by how they treat their animals because animals don't have a voice and they give you this unconditional love. And all they ask is that you take care of them in return. And so I personally judge people by how they treat their animals. If I see someone being unkind to their animal, um, it just, they're just not for me. Um, I cross to the other side of the street basically. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I usually do try and include some animals in, in everything I write because I just think they're a window into people's hearts. And really, I guess that's our first indication that Thomas isn't un as unlikable as possible, because the minute you introduce Christopher Robin, we know he's got a soft spot. Yes, he has a cat he's had since he was a child, and that cat means so much to him, because that cat always chose him first. And in a family, without giving too much away, that has trauma, um, to be chosen first and to know you're, you are special to someone is very formative. For, for a person, especially a child growing up in, with a trauma in the family. So yeah, Thomas can't be a bad guy because he really, really, really loves his old cat. <laughs> so have you stumbled upon your next question that, that, that will open up your next book? I, I have. Um, so my next novel is coming out um, next August with Berkeley as well. And um, it's about a woman who 
always says yes to everything because she's trying to prove that she's worthy of love. And I think that's something a lot of women do. Maybe a lot of men do it too, but I'm a woman. So I'm coming from that perspective. And when her fiance asks her to um, marry him, she says yes, even though she's really uncertain about whether he's the right guy for her. And he gives her an antique engagement ring. And um, in the process of researching that ring, she discovers that it's tied to a man who was a volunteer ambulance driver in World War I, long deceased. And he wrote letters home um, from the war to his sister. And they're compiled in the special collections area of the San Francisco Library. She, she goes to read those letters and um, discovers a kindred spirit. And she writes a note to this long dead man and she puts it in the book. And when she returns to the library three days later, he's written her back. And so that is the start of the story. But also the question that led me to it is, I wanted to look at the legacy of one person, one letter, um, and see how, what the ripple effect was in the world. And so I have this young woman who really needs guidance I have this long deceased letter writer and I have someone writing her back and the legacy of those letters and how they stretch out beyond her own life into the lives of her friends and family is kind of the question I was asking and looking at and trying to find the answer to. Sounds like another page turner. <laughs> I hope so. I hope it is. Well, before then, people have lots of time to pick up Some of It Was Real. Nan Fisher, thank you for your time today and chatting with us. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for reading some of it was real and for interviewing me. It's a pleasure. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time we chat with lawyer turned author Catherine McKenzie, who turned a real life invitation to a secret women's organization into a fast paced thriller in which women try to do it like the boys do. Until then, see how we do what we do by following us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Teague.